workers who believe through history, who live throughout history, as well as Andre Cooper and myself. We all become believers through an act of faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Old Testament saints looked ahead to a coming Redeemer. They had limited knowledge because they did not have all the scriptures. But through the witness of others and through some of the scriptures, they knew that there was a promise of a coming Messiah. Then there were those who lived during Jesus' time. They had added revelation because they could actually see Jesus for himself. But still, they had limited amount of scriptures. But then there, there are those of us who are New Testament saints, and we are most fortunate of all because we have the whole scriptures that tell us everything that has happened in the past. We look back. Others looked ahead. Some were looking right at him. But again, we all come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's how we get to heaven. One other thought. When we hear individuals share their conversion experience, we may think that faith happened all at once. Usually, their story is a pilgrimage. Most need time to reflect on the gospel. For them, and most likely for all of us, coming to the Savior was a process.
I am Abraham, originally known as Abram. I was born in Ur of the Chaldeans, a heathen nation. I had married a woman named Sarai, who eventually would become known as Sarah. One day the Lord said to me, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I took God at his word and traveled to a country I did not know, taking with me my wife Sarah and my nephew Lot. Taking my nephew Lot with me later on proved to be a disaster. On this journey with the Lord, 
I made a few mistakes of my own along the way. I am not proud of these failures. Not once, but twice. I passed my wife off as being my sister, fearing for my own life. In spite of my poor judgment, God continued to bless my life. Then the Lord came to me in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But I asked the Lord, What will thou give me since I am childless? But God assured me that one would come from my own body to be my heir. And then God said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. So shall your descendants be. At that moment, I truly believed God and His promises to me. No longer would I be known as Abram, but Abraham, which means father of a multitude of nations. I wish I could say that I never doubted God once. But probably like most people, I had my share of ups and downs. Although I knew what God had asked me to do, I found myself questioning his timetable. After all, Sarah was beyond childbearing years and had been barren all these years. So we decided to take matters into our own hands. Sarah suggested I impregnate her Egyptian maidservant Hagar, from which Ishmael was born. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. And I never dreamed of how many problems I created by not waiting on God's timing. (laughs) Eventually, God was faithful. And when I was a hundred years old, and Sarah was ninety, lo and behold, Isaac was born. This son was truly loved and brought much happiness to our lives. Now when Isaac was just a young lad, God tested my faith and his promises to me. God told me to take my son Isaac, whom I love dearly, and travel to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. So Isaac and I and two young men rose early the next morning and traveled for three days to the destination God told me. When we arrived, I asked the two young men who traveled with us to stay behind as Isaac and I would travel further on where we would worship God and then we would return. Though I knew what God had asked me to do, I also believed in the resurrection I truly believed that if God asked me to take the life of my only son, that he would bring him back to life. And so it was, as I raised my knife to kill my son, an angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand over the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son your only son from me. At that moment, I looked up, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So I took the ram, and I offered him as a burnt offering in the place of my son. And I named the place 
the Lord will provide. Then the angel of the Lord said to me, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son from me, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will multiply your seed as the stars that are in the heavens, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Hello, my name is Rahab, but most of you probably know me from my former profession, Rahab the harlot. I lived in a heathen nation, so being a prostitute really wasn't looked down upon. I loved my mom and dad and brothers and sisters, but ever since little on up, I knew I was different. I was wild and adventuresome and had an eye for business. So I decided to move out. With the savings I had, I bought a little house up against the city wall. Had a neat little stairway leading up to a flat roof. I housed many merchants as they came to and from our city and provided every service needed. But it was from these travelers that I heard of Jehovah, the one true God of Israel. They told me stories of the exodus of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and the conquering of many nations. I, like the rest of my people, believed in idols. It's all I ever knew. But the more I heard of this Jehovah and the miracles he had done among his people, I too began to believe. I mean, what other God had done this for their people? It was Joshua who had sent two spies to our city. They had been spotted and were being pursued. So when they showed up at my door, I decided to take them in no matter what it cost me. Surely the king of Jericho would find out that I had given them accommodations and would send someone knocking on my door looking for the spies. So I told them to go up to my flat roof and hide among a pile of flax that was lying there to dry. Sure enough, it wasn't long before the pursuers came to my door looking for the men. When they asked where they were, I said they had already left by way of the eastern gate. And if they didn't believe my word, they could come in and search my house. Instead, they took off, hoping to catch up with the men. As soon as I felt it was safe and under the cover of night, I led the spies out my window and down the city wall and told them the best way to avoid capture. I had been an idolater and an immoral one at that, but I told the two men, the Lord has given you our city and that their terror had fallen upon us. The Lord, your God, he is the one true God of heaven above and earth below. Yes, I had lied, and had I been caught, could be faced with treason, or even face certain death. I had betrayed my own city, but I believed it was worth it for a cause that was the Lord's. I told the two men that since I had dealt kindly with them, that they must in turn swear to deal kindly with me and my family, my father's household, and save us from death. I asked for a pledge, and they gave me their word, and this, a scarlet cord, they told me that if I hung this from my window, that all who had come into my house, my father and mother and brothers and sisters and their families, that we would be saved. Sure enough, days later, Jericho was destroyed, but the promise made to me was kept. This scarlet cord, as it hung in the window, 
saved me and my family. That day I was saved physically by a scarlet cord. But Jehovah saved me spiritually. When I think back, I didn't save the spies out of human pity, but because I knew they were from the Lord. I decided to leave Jericho, and I started a new life. I became a respectable woman, and I married Solomon, and God blessed us with our first baby boy named Boaz. My name is Ruth. I'm from the country of Moab. Moab is a country that's really known for its idolatry. So as a young girl growing up, I never knew about the one true God, Jehovah, until I met a man whose name was Malon. Malon was from the country of Israel, a town called Bethlehem. And he, a brother of his, Chilion, and his parents, whose names were Elimelech and Naomi, had moved to our country to escape the famine that was in their land. It was uh, through Malon and his mother and mother, Naomi, that taught me about the one true God, Jehovah, and the law, and the coming Redeemer. Unfortunately, shortly after they had arrived in our country, Elimelech passed away, leaving Naomi a widow. Several years later, Malon and I were married, and then Chilion married another girl from our country whose name was Orpah. The unthinkable happened, though. Malon, shortly after that, got sick, and he passed away. And Orpah, too, her husband, Chilion, he died as well. That left Naomi with no husband and no surviving children. Well, the three of us banded together and found comfort in our shared plight of widowhood. Well, now that the famine was over, Naomi decided that she was going to go back to her own country. And Orpah and I decided that we were going to go with her. We had become very attached to her. And so we started on our journey together. But Naomi turned to us and said, Look, as widows without children and Moabites, you girls face a very uncertain future in Bethlehem. You should return to your own country. Well, Orpah thought about it, and she tearfully said goodbye. But I determined that I was going to go with Naomi. I knew that she had become a bitter woman over the loss of her family, but I had grown to love her, and I decided that I was going to go with her. Many times she turned to me and said, Ruth, just go back to your own country. But finally I told her, Naomi, please do not ask me to go back again. I am going with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. You see, I could no longer go back to my country and worship those worthless gods made out of wood and stone. No, I had become a believer in the one true God, and I wanted to be among those people whose God is the Lord. When we arrived in Bethlehem, I, I decided that I was going to go help Naomi by gleaning in the fields and picking up the grain that had fallen. She was way too old to work, so I would help her in this manner, and I knew that God was going to provide for our needs. Now, see, under Jewish law, I could have gone to any field that I wanted to and picking up the, pick up the fallen grain, but I know that it was God that directed me to this one particular field. So that first morning, I went out, and I was picking up the grain in the hot sun, and a man came up to me. His name was Boaz. Boaz happened to be the master of the field. He came up to me, and he had heard of my faith in God and also of my circumstances. You know what he told me? 
don't go to any other field. Stay here in my field and work. And then he invited me to have lunch with him. I'll never forget that day when I got home. I had so much food with me. Naomi was laughing and crying. God had really, really met our, our, our physical need. But he was going to meet even more needs than that. To make a long story short, Boaz becomes my kinsman redeemer. You know what that means? He became my husband. I was his wife. You see, I went from living in the country of Moab and worshiping idols to worshiping the one true God, Jehovah. And I went from poverty and widowhood to plenty as the wife of the master of the fields. And I went from childless to God gave me a son. And his name was Obed. You know, one day, Obed would have a son. And his name was Jesse. And Jesse would one day have a son. And his name was King David. That's right. I, a foreigner, am the great-grandmother of King David. Praise be to God for his unspeakable kindness and mercy in my life. I've always been short. And, uh, yes, I've always hated it. No, there is no pretending. <laughs> Both my parents were short, so it was inevitable that the offspring as well, that we'd all be short. You know, I really think that's the main reason why I became a tax collector. It was revenge for all my fellow countrymen who just heckled me so much as a child. I can tell you this. Most people, if not all, are not overly fond of tax collectors, but I didn't really care. I could probably say I, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. Now, publican. Publican was a detestable word given to those who would collect taxes and duties on imports and exports. Goods were examined at the city gates and other ports of entries, and taxes were exacted. Well, tax gathering, it was just despised by the Jewish people, probably because these customs that we collected were given to the Romans. So we were viewed as traitors and just an awful profession to be in, the tax collector. But, and... I, Zacchaeus, I have to admit that I exacted and extorted many times more than what was appointed. So I, Zacchaeus, became known as the chief publican and a wealthy one at that. But all that wealth, the big house and all that went along with it, anything money could buy, I still had an emptiness inside of me. My life just wasn't complete. That's why I became so interested in this Jesus that I was hearing so much about. I had heard about his teaching and the miracles that he had performed. 
And I was fascinated by it. I determined that if the opportunity presented itself, I would see this Jesus for myself. Well, a few days later, Jesus came to Jericho. So, this would be my chance. But, I knew that there would be throngs of people around Jesus, and I just hate being short. How would I in a crowd such as that get to see him? I had been in the press of crowds before, and at best, I would see someone's shoulder blade, and at worst, I'd have someone's elbow on my face. And I certainly had no friends that would hoist me up on their shoulders so I could at least catch a glimpse of him. But then I got an idea. I ran up the street ahead of the crowd, and I climbed up into a sycamore tree. I remember distinctly, yes, it was a sycamore tree, as I remember now all the events of that day. So I perched there and I waited for Jesus to pass by below. And a few minutes later, he came and was passing below and then a most incredible thing happened. He looked up in that tree directly at me, called me by my name, saying, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Well, at first I was speechless. And anybody that knows me, no. Speechless is very rare for me. All these people around him, and yet he looked at me with purpose. Directly at me, called me by my name. Called me as if he knew who I was. Oh, I thought, if he knows who I am, does he know what I am? At that time, I, it didn't matter. I hurried down the tree and I welcomed Jesus into my home. Oh, the grumbling and the complaining from the people that Jesus would go into the house of a publican. Publican was a word that was coupled with the word sinner. Just despised and detestable. We were considered on the level of harlots, heathen and Gentiles. But yet... Here was Jesus eating at my table. That day, I became a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. Oh, and there were changes in my life. First, I gave half of my wealth to the poor. And anybody who I had defrauded, I repaid four times over. That emptiness that was in my heart that all the world's wealth couldn't fill, that emptiness was, was now gone. That chip on my shoulder, it was taken away. As well as was taken away the guilt of all my sin. Yes, I begin to grow that day. As you can see, not in stature. But I begin to grow in a transforming heart relationship with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. My name is Paul, although it used to be Saul before my conversion. I was born in Tarsus. And my father was a Roman. Therefore, I'm a freeborn citizen.
of Rome. A Jew by birth, and as to the law, a Pharisee, believing in the resurrection of the dead. I had strict religious training, educated by Gamaliel. I was circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, an avid persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness found in the law, blameless. I was there the day that Stephen, a man who was righteous and did many works and wonders among the people, was stoned to death. And I'm ashamed to admit that I was in wholehearted agreement to having him put to death simply for his faith and his testimony in Jesus Christ. But I, I led the persecution of the church, going from house to house and dragging out men and women and having them cast into prison, all the while thinking that I was doing a great work for God. And while I was yet breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, I went to the chief priest and requested letters to the synagogue at Damascus that I might go. And if I found anybody belonging to the way, bring them bound, both men and women, back to Jerusalem. Well, as I traveled on the road to Damascus, just as we were nearing the city, suddenly there was a bright light that flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now get up. Go into Damascus and wait there, and I will show you what you must do. The men, those traveling with me, stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. So I got up from the ground, but I couldn't see, and I had to be led by hand into the city for three days. I was blind, and I couldn't eat, and I couldn't drink. But there was a disciple in Damascus. His name was Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, telling him that he was to go to the house where he would find me praying and lay his hands on me that I might receive my sight. Ah, but. Ananias was leery because he had heard many things about me and how I had harmed the saints at Jerusalem and that I had authority to arrest anyone who named the name of Jesus. But the Lord said unto him, Go, for he is a chosen servant of mine. He must bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings and to the sons of Israel. 
And I will show him many great things that he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias entered the house where I was staying. He laid his hands on me and I received my sight. I was baptized and I began to eat and drink and regain my strength. And immediately I began to proclaim in the synagogue that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I was a new creature. Me, the persecutor, became a believer in Jesus Christ. And I never tire of telling the story of how I was converted on the road to Damascus. There are four questions which every man must answer. How is a man saved? Where does religious authority lie? What is the church? And what is the essence of Christian living? Hello, my name is Martin Luther. I'd like to share my testimony with you today, and by doing so, I hope to show you how I personally arrived at the answers for those four questions. I was born in 1483 in Germany. My parents wished for me to be educated, perhaps become a lawyer. They wanted a lot more from me than a short life in the mines. One day I was walking home when I was 22 years old. I was caught in a thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt from out of the sky struck me, and I fell to the ground, and I rashly cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. Well, shortly thereafter, overpowered with a sense of guilt, And much to my parents' dismay, I might add, I entered a monastery. I was consumed with a sense of guilt versus the omnipotence of God. And when I said my first Mass, I I thought to myself, who am I to lift up my eyes or to raise my hands to the divine majesty Who am I to speak to the holy creator of the universe? For I am but ashes and dust and full of sin. I became sullen and full of despair. And I was convinced that all men were well beyond redemption. Doomed and miserable and and forsaken of God. I became so angry that one day I cried out and I said, I don't love God. I hate God. But even when we are faithless and unloving, He remains faithful and loving. And you might ask how I know that. Let me tell you. One day, as I was studying the Word, I came across the mysterious words of Christ on the cross when He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ forsaken? How could this be? I was forsaken, but I was a sinner. Christ most certainly was not. And I came to understand, as I considered this truth, that the answer to this apparent contradiction might lie in the identification of the Son of Man with sinful humanity. Had Christ interceded For man? 
Had the Son of God become forsaken in order that men might be received? I was fascinated with this doctrine, and I became fixated upon the book of Romans, especially the passage that says, The just shall live by faith. Night and day I pondered this until I finally understood that the removal of God's wrath from me because of my sin had absolutely nothing to do with my dedication or my vigilance or my good works. But rather, it had everything to do with the sacrificial death of His beloved Son on my behalf. And it all became clear to me. I was to make Christ the Lord of my life and trust what he had done for me instead of trusting in myself and how I would get to God. In that day, I was reborn, saved as you might call it. I was set free from my burden of sin. Well, it wasn't as if my new faith didn't have its share of problems. I began to understand what Christ meant when he said that others would hate me because they had hated him first. You see, the doctrine of justification by faith clashes strongly with the Roman Catholic dogma of sacrament and good works. And since I was willing to openly criticize the Pope and the religious traditions, I was persecuted for my faith. And in October of 1517, I took a monumental leap of faith, and I posted a thesis of 95 criticisms on the church door at Wittenberg. Among them were my firm stand against things such as indulgences and the concepts of purgatory. And because of this, when others would challenge me on my beliefs, I asked them to show me from the scriptures where I am wrong, and none could. When it comes to religious authority, it is not up to a man or an institution, even the church, to establish articles of faith. These, my friends, must come from Scripture alone. By the summer of 1520, three years later, a document was circulating throughout Europe, and it read, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause, for a wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Of course, the wild boar was me. I had been declared a heretic because the Pope had found my beliefs to be, shall we say, repugnant and offensive. Later that year, the document was served to me. And I was given 60 days to repent of my beliefs. So 60 days later, in December of 1520... I answered and responded by going to the town square and openly burning Roman Catholic literature and laws. And the flames were a fitting symbol of the anti-papal defiance that was beginning to burn in the heart of the German people. For example, the economy was suffering because of the toll that indulgences and offerings to the Roman Catholic Church was taking on the German people. 
a popular slogan that was going around at the time when they were raising money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome went as follows. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a loved one's, the soul of a loved one from purgatory springs. It was also oppressive. And the news that a, the need for a complicated administration of bishops and priests and monks and masses and prayers was no longer necessary was good news to the people. And it was refreshing and it was liberating. Well, as you have probably guessed, I was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And it was left up to the German Emperor, Charles V. The Pope had him decide my fate. Now, Charles V was at a crossroads. He liked my message of the need for servants to submit to their masters. But he, in the end, was unwilling to part from the security and privilege of Rome. I was declared an outlaw and went into hiding. But God blessed me in that time, and I translated the entire German New Testament into German. In the end, the Lutheran message did cause a secular revolt. And for this I am not happy, nor was it my wish. But it seems that the newfound spiritual freedom of the peasantry caused them to rise up and seek economic freedom from their masters. I continued to preach my message of the need to submit to one's master. But all that really resulted in was the peasantry considering me an outcast as well. Well, I promised you an answer to four questions. How is a man saved? By faith and not as a result of works. Where does religious authority lie? Not in a man or an institution, but in the scriptures alone. What is the church? It is the whole body of Christian believers who are priests before and unto God. And what is the essence of Christian living? My good friends, it is the sacrifice of one's life to the will and the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. My name is Billy Sunday, and I was born near Ames, Iowa. My father, William Sunday, was a Union soldier during the Civil War who had enlisted in the infantry and died of disease in Missouri five weeks after I was born. When I was 10 years old, my impoverished mom was forced to send me and my older brother to an orphanage. It was at the orphanage that I gained orderly habits, got a decent primary education, and realized my athletic ability. By 14, I was on my own and started working for Colonel Scott, tending his Shetland ponies and doing other farm chores. The Scots provided me with a loving home and the opportunity to attend high school. Though I never received a high school diploma, I was better educated than the average American. My professional baseball career was launched in 1883, and my greatest asset was my speed. Over my career, I was never much of a hitter. I was known more for my brilliant catches, and that was in the days before outfielders wore gloves. In March of 1891, I asked to be released from my contract with the Philadelphia Phillies. A few years previous, somewhere during my 1886-1887 baseball season, 
Some of my teammates and I had a few beers and were wandering the streets of Chicago on our day off. At one corner, we stopped to listen to a street preaching team from the Pacific Garden Mission. I was attracted by the gospel songs that I'd heard my mother sing. I began attending services at the mission. A former society matron who worked at the mission finally convinced me that I needed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. So I did. The effect was immediate. I stopped drinking and started attending the Jefferson Park Presbyterian Church, a congregation handy to both the ballpark and to my rented room. After my conversion, my changed behavior was recognized by both teammates and fans. I soon started speaking in churches and at YMCA's. In 1886, I was introduced to Helen Amelia Thompson, who became known as Nell to me. She was the daughter of a prominent Chicago businessman. Nell had been raised in a more privileged environment, and her father strongly discouraged her courtship because he had no respect for a professional baseball player. But I pursued Nell anyways, and eventually we were married in 1888. In the spring of 1891, I turned down a baseball contract worth $3,000 a year in order to accept a position with the Chicago YMCA at $83 a month. This proved to be good preparation for my future evangelistic career. For three years, I visited the sick, prayed with the troubled, counseled the suicidal, and visited saloons to invite patrons to evangelistic meetings. In 1893, I became the full-time assistant to J. Wilbur Chapman, one of the best-known evangelists in the U.S. at the time. Listening to Chapman preach night after night, I received a valuable course in homiletics. Chapman critiqued my attempts at evangelistic preaching and showed me how to put a good sermon together. Eventually, I struck out on my own, and praise God, he used me tremendously. I can only give him the credit. Our ministry grew with the aid of my wife, who joined me in the ministry by managing the revival campaigns. We hired a nanny to care for our four children. God truly blessed the ministry he set before us. I had the opportunity to preach about 20,000 sermons to approximately 100 million people, although I'm sure some of them were repeat attenders. It is estimated that one million people came forward at the invitations given to receive Christ. God used me in ways that I never thought possible. My only regret is my children. I was disgraced by the behavior of my three sons who engaged in all the activities I preached against. My oldest son, George, committed suicide in 1933. Aside from my personal loss, I thank God that he saved me and saw fit to use me, a rough and tough baseball player, to advance his kingdom. I have been called the greatest gospel preacher since the Apostle Paul. Well, God will be the judge. But it all began that one night when I, along with my baseball cronies, heard a group singing on the streets of Chicago, Where is my wandering boy tonight? My mother's favorite song. Hi, my name is Andre Cooper. 
I was born April 1st, 1980. Anybody that knows me knows that God got that birthday right, that it's on April Fool's Day. Um, as I get into my testimony, there's one word that I would like you guys to kind of keep in your mind, and that word is slavery. And I know you're looking at me, you know, I'm a black man, and a lot of times you get in your mind that you're thinking about the slavery that, was, uh, that we had in our country a long time ago. We're not talking about that kind of slavery. See, the slavery that affected my life was not because of my skin color. It wasn't because of my social status or how much money I had or anything like that. It was because I was a slave to sin. So just keep that in mind as I go through my testimony. Like I said before, I was born in 1980. I was born in Harrisburg and um, had a lot of insecurities in my life. I was was a fun-loving kid. I liked to play sports and run around. I liked people, and I liked having fun. That's the kind of things I like to do. But I did have a lot of insecurities in my life. First, I didn't know my father. Second, I didn't really have a real good relationship with my mother. So that there was a a start of some some insecurities. I'm going to list off the list of schools that I've had over the years, and you'll kind of get a more clear picture of how that worked. Kindergarten, I went to a school called Downey. First grade, I went to a school called Lincoln. Uh, second grade, I went to a school called Camp Curtin. Third and fourth grade, I went to a school called Steel School. Fifth grade, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. Sixth through ninth grade was probably the most stable part of my life where I lived in the same neighborhood and went to the same school for any, any length amount of time. So you can see I had a lot of changes in my life. So I was really, I had a lot of insecurities in my life. And uh, around 10th grade in my life, that's where things really started going downhill for me. See, in 10th grade, I was introduced to some troublemakers called girls. <laughs> um, as you can see in my life, that I had a lot of insecurities, you know, of you know, wanting to be fit, wanted to be accepted, wanted people to love me, wanted you know, all these things. And at this time, in 10th grade, girls was that for me. So all, all, everything that I've done, all my decisions were based on girls. So in 10th grade, I started skipping school. I started smoking weed. I started drinking. started partying and getting into the whole partying thing. I was into all those kinds of things. Actually, in 10th grade, I ended up dropping out of school for two years. I ended up going back and getting my diploma, praise the God. But, uh, but I did do that, and I had a rough time in my life during my teenage years because the only thing I was worried about was girls and partying and just having that whole kind of lifestyle. And that was my teenage years. When I was around 20, 21 years old, I started thinking to myself, is this it? Is this all there is to life? Because I was doing all these things, all the things that the world would say that we need to have, all the things that are glorified in the world, I was doing them, but I still wasn't satisfied. I still was empty. So I was like, is this it? Is this all there is to life? And so I started searching. And so as I was searching, um, I started um, when I started going back to the church that uh, I went to when I was a child that my grandmother went to. I even got baptized there, thinking that, you know, being baptized would get me right with God and everything would be all right. But see, that wasn't the case, because just baptism doesn't save you. And so I did that, and so I kept going on and living life, and I would be okay for a month trying to stop doing these things I wanted to do, because this whole lifestyle that I had, I wanted to stop. And I kept doing it, and then I would stop for a month, and then I'd get back to it as soon as a friend calls or somebody would say, hey, let's go to the club or let's go do this. I was right there with them. You see, and this is where that term slavery comes in, because I wanted to stop doing all these things, 
but I couldn't because I was a slave to them. You see, these things that I wanted to stop doing, they controlled me. They, those are the things that, that managed my life, not me. I didn't have control over it. I couldn't say, hey, I wanted to stop and stop because I couldn't. So these things, I was a slave to these things. Through, now, through a bunch of different circumstances that I won't get into right now that a lot of people would say is coincidence, I would tell you that it was God leading me to himself. I know that for a fact. But as I, uh, so as I went through these circumstances, it brought me here to this church. And when I came to this church and um, from my mother-in-law, between my mother-in-law and the piece, some of the people that I was uh, talked to at this church, I saw something that I never had before, and that was freedom. People were free, and I was a slave, and I wanted that. So I kept, keep, I kept going on, and I kept searching, and I was like, I want what these people have. What is different? And the common denominator was Christ. So I kept searching. I started studying the Bible. I started doing all these different things. And it came to a point to one night we had a, a guy here who was speaking. He was a missionary over to the Muslim countries, and he, he taught there. And one thing that he said, this was back in 2003, um, one thing that he said, he had everybody close their eyes and bow their heads, and he said, there are some people here, and there's something that's keeping you away from Christ, that's keeping you away, keeping you away from God. He said, take care of that. Ask God to take that away from you. Once he said that, there was something that immediately popped into my mind. On our drive home, I was talking to my, my wife, but she was my fiance at the time. On our way home, I asked her, I said, you know, what did you think when this guy said this? You know, did anything come into your mind? And she said the exact same thing that popped into my mind popped into her mind. And see, that was enough for me. At that, from that night on, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Christ changed my life from that point. You see, remember I said how I was, a slave to, I was a slave to sin, I was a slave to all those things? I didn't need any of those things anymore. I didn't need to smoke, I didn't need to drink, I didn't need to party. I could stop doing all those things. I've stopped doing all those things because I have Christ and that's all I've needed. That insecurities and that, that, that emptiness I felt was all filled by Christ. And see, he has drastically changed my life from that point until now. Like right now, I teach in our youth group here. I have a family, which one of my, one of my kids is actually, has, has become a believer at that point. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago, if I would have been up here speaking to you today, or if I would have been in church and my, and my family would have been, come, been after God, I would have said, you're crazy. But God used me and he has changed my life from then till now. And if you take anything away from my testimony, I want you to take this. I once was a slave, but now I'm free. Thanks. One of my favorite verses is, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you had asked me what I thought that verse said, those verses said up until I was 18, it would have been something like this. For by grace are you saved through faith, plus some works. It is the gift of God, plus some works, so that every man can boast in what he did. 
Let's go back to the beginning. My name is Faye Malfair. Some of you know my parents. My dad's Don Shope and my mother was Ann Shope. Um, I was born into a good home. My parents were good people where they were not perfect. But when I look back, and sometimes it's only when you grow up and become a parent yourself, you realize how normal your household was because you get out into the real world and you see a lot of dysfunction and you think, praise God, I grew up in a normal, loving home where they met all our physical needs, maybe not all our wants. I have an older brother, an older sister, and a twin brother, Ray. My parents were farmers when they started out. Um, my dad bought the Shope Garden Farm when it was a farm, and he farmed it for a number of years, and then eventually he got out of farming and he got into building. And that, that was in the 1940s. In the 1950s, he bought this farm. It went from the Turnpike down to the Highsboro Reservoir. When I was two years old, our family moved from that farmhouse over to the limestone farmhouse, which is the farmhouse to this farm. Um, there are three things I'm really thankful to for my parents. Uh, although, again, when you're a kid, you don't always appreciate it. My parents made all four of us kids take some kind of music lessons. Didn't really like it at the time. I took piano lessons. Tortured my teacher with piano lessons. I did not practice. I feel bad about that. The second thing is my parents taught us how to work. When Ruth said about gleaning in the field, my dad would um, rent the, last, the land out that he wasn't uh, developed into real estate yet. He would rent it to a farmer, and the farmer a lot of times put corn out. When the corn was finally picked, he would send us kids out to the field somewhere around November and say, now you kids get out there and you pick out the rest of the corn that's been left you know, lying down. And it's like, man, why are we doing this? It's freezing out here. It's a lot of work. There really wasn't a lot of money for this. Can you turn this down slightly? There wasn't a lot of money in doing this, but it was their way of teaching us how to work. And the third thing that my parents did that I'm appreciative for is they took us to church every Sunday. Um, it wasn't the most theologically sound church, and it wasn't doctrinally sound, but they insisted on taking us every week, no questions asked. When I was nine years old, I remember asking my mother, some spiritual questions. I wasn't sure where I was going. I wasn't sure about heaven. And I do believe my mom was a, a believer, but I think that she was untaught herself as to how to lead another person to the Lord. So she took me back to church. And I remember we went through confirmation classes. We were baptized, and you automatically became a member of the church. And so I thought I was okay for a number of years. When I was 15, I started running around with my cousin, Norma Wagner. Norma was probably the most influential person in my life. She introduced me to my husband, Paul. When I was 15, he was 18. We started dating pretty young. When I was 17, I remember Norma saying to me, we were sitting out in her driveway where Dan and Michelle live now, and she asked me, Faye, if you die, would you go to heaven? And I remember saying, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm a member of the church. I was baptized, played the organ, blah, 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 do all these good things. And that's where I left it. As time went on, Norma started seeing me make some wrong choices, so she was concerned about me. She started inviting me to her church. Back then, it was called Campbelltown Bible Church. She eventually became known as Lebanon Valley Bible Church. Norma kept bugging me constantly, come to church, come to church. Paul and I had been dating two years up until now, so sometimes we'd go to his church, which was the United Methodist Church. Sometimes we'd go to my church. It was the Church of the Brethren. And we used to think, man, there has to be more to church than this. There has to be. But finally, to get Norma off our back, we went to her church. And I can remember the first Sunday we came out, we thought, wow, we actually learned something today about the Bible. So we kept going back. 
And over the course of the year, I started learning bits and pieces, things I had never really been taught before. But the one thing I had a problem with was that I didn't really see myself as a sinner. I thought the sinner was the person who was in jail. And I was a good person, basically. I had a few issues going on, but nothing big. But then God started convicting in my heart about one particular sin. I knew it was wrong, and I knew I had to deal with it. One day, I was heading to work. I worked at a bank in Cedar Cliff, and I was on my way. I had gotten on at the high school interchange here. I was heading towards Camp Hill, and I started to think about it. It's almost like God spoke into my brain. If you die today, would you go to heaven? And I started to think about that. Wow, would I go to heaven? I'm not really sure. And it's not that I didn't know the basics. I knew Jesus Christ was born at Christmas. I knew he died on a cross. I knew he died, was put in a tomb. I knew he rose again. I knew those facts. But it never made it personal. I never came to the point where I admitted to God, yeah, I'm a sinner, and you died for me. So I'm thinking about this, and I thought, did I ever do that? I can't remember when I did do that. I don't think I ever did do that. By this time, I had gotten to the Harrisburg South Bridge. And I thought, you know what? Going across this bridge, I'm going to make sure. Didn't close my eyes. I'm driving across the bridge. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior going across the Susquehanna. When I got to the other side bridge, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind I had trusted Christ. It's like a load of sin was off my shoulders. Got to work that day. Terrific day at work. Fortunately for me, my husband had gotten saved two months earlier. We had bought a townhouse. We were getting married the following May. And in our townhouse, he had accepted Christ himself. Um, we had gone to a missions conference soon after that, Lebanon Valley Bible Church. We got involved there. And uh, we decided we wanted to get involved in missions, but the missionaries were like, you know, you two kids, you really need some Bible training. So we thought, yep, we probably do. We got married in May. We decided to quit our jobs That's that August. We went to World Life Bible Institute for a year. From there, we went to Brazil, though there are short-term missionaries. We came home. We got involved at Lebanon Valley. Paul was teaching senior high um, Sunday school, and then we also became youth leaders, senior high youth leaders. A few years after that, we started our family. A few years later, I ran into a good friend. Well, I ran into a friend that I had graduated with. It was at Kresge's. So if you remember Kresge's, you know how long ago that was. It was down here where Sharp Shopper used to be. We started talking like crazy. She was pregnant with her second child. I was pregnant with our third child. And her mother said, you know, you two need to get together, start, uh, get together sometime after these kids are born. So two months later, Amanda was born and we got together. We became the best friends. Janet was like me, though. She thought that you get to heaven by being a good person. So over the course of the next three years, I would just give her bits and pieces of truth. You know, Janet, it's by trusting Christ. One night, we're sitting out in our driveway, my driveway, and I gave the gospel to her again. She says, you know what? I want my husband, Paul, to come over. I want you to go through the gospel with him. So that Friday evening, Jan and Paul came over. Paul and I went through the whole gospel. It's like the light went on Jan's eyes. Yep, she understood. A couple of nights later, by herself, she accepted Christ. Fortunately, six months later, Paul accepted Christ himself also. And the neat thing is, is that they had the privilege of leading their children to the Lord. Uh, Jan and Paul had three kids, 15 months apart. We had four kids. Missy was four when our fourth one was born. We kept each other sane. She was a good friend. neat thing is about Janet is, Janet had a neighbor who moved in next door. Her name was Marianne Dudkavage. And when I look back, I think, praise the Lord, Janet witnessed to Marianna. Marianna will tell you that Janet and Paul were the most influential people in her life. 
she got saved. She started talking to Andre. When you think about Norma witnessed to me, I witnessed to Janet. Janet witnessed to Marianna. Mary Anna witnessed to Andre. Andre witnessed to someone else. And when you think of the gospel, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find a bread. In closing, I want to ask you a couple of questions. How many of you remember the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated? How many of you remember? Put your hands up. How many of you can say where you were? Okay, let's bring it a little more current. How many of you remember the day the Challenger blew up? Remember where you were? A little bit more current. How many of you remember September 11, 2001, the day the Twin Towers went down? Okay, don't show your hands, but how many of you can remember a time, a place, a person when you can think back and say, that's exactly where I was the day I decided to trust Christ? But maybe you're there. I do remember that, and that's great. You're a born-again Christian. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, I can't remember the time or a place, but if you ask me right now, who am I trusting in to get me to heaven? My answer is Jesus Christ and him alone. Praise the Lord. Your eternity is sealed in heaven. But if you're here today and you, like I was, can't think of a time when I acknowledge to God I am a sinner, I am in need of a Savior, don't leave here today without making that decision. In fact, when the group sings this last song, during their song, put your faith and trust in Christ. And make this today the day that you know for sure that your eternity is in heaven. Ruth, come and sing. Satan's kingdom 
has been crushed. We've been rescued from its chains. Holy to the Lord. He's holy. We're blameless in His sight. Standing, standing in, in His, his presence, presence without stain.
Thank you.